beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Tomorrow is Thanksgiving Day. When Thanksgiving Day was first celebrated in North America, the settlers to this new continent gave thanks to God. Although they may not have had much, they saw their blessings as coming from the hands of the Lord. Thanksgiving Day has been officially celebrated as an annual holiday in Canada since 1879, when Parliament designated a national day of thanksgiving. On this day, we traditionally remember God's blessings on our crops and labor. We give thanks for his provision for all our bodily needs. God's people Israel also celebrated harvest festivals. In early summer, they celebrated the Feast of Weeks. It was a festival of joy during which the first fruits of the wheat harvest were presented to the Lord. This feast was also called Pentecost. It was celebrated 50 days after the Passover. Later in the fall, the people celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths. It was a week of celebration for the harvest, during which the people commemorated the journey from Egypt to Canaan by living in booths or tents. From this, we see that Israel's celebration of their harvest festivals involved more than just giving thanks for his blessing on their crops. The main focus was on the Lord's redemptive work. It was on how he delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and how he gave them their own inheritance in the promised land. In the Bible, the joy of God's people expressed in their harvest festivals extended from the physical to the spiritual. They truly thanked God for his material blessings in providing them with food and drink. Yet they celebrated not just the ingathering of crops, but also how God gathered many people into his kingdom. Pentecost was a harvest festival. Yet in Acts 2, we see how it is on this day that the Lord pours out his Holy Spirit and how he begins gathering many people from nations throughout the world into his church. Thanksgiving in the Bible involves much more than celebrating God's goodness in the bounty of our land by having a turkey dinner. It's an occasion to reflect on God's goodness and grace in our lives. Do you, beloved, have anything for which you are thankful this year? How will you express your thankfulness for God's blessings in your life? Let's consider these things together by looking at Psalm 147. It is a song of praise to God. The song can be divided into three parts. And the verses 1 to 6, 7 to 11, and 12 to 20. Each of these parts begins with a call to worship. Each of these parts is followed by reasons why we should give praise to God. 
I summarize for you the word of God under the following theme. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Praise the Lord for his restoration, for his provision, and for his protection. Psalm 147 is a hallelujah psalm. It's part of a collection of psalms at the end of our Psalter that brings forth a crescendo of praise to God for all his marvelous works. Psalms 146 to 150 each begin and end with the Hebrew word hallelujah. In English, we translate that with praise the Lord. This song is a call for all God's people to join together in singing, praising God for his goodness and grace towards us. So why should we praise God? We might say because he is God, because he deserves our praise and adoration, because we were created by him and our chief duty in life is to give glory to God in all we say and do. These things are undoubtedly true. But beloved, we don't just praise God out of duty. The psalmist explains, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The point is that praising God is pleasant. It is enjoyable to praise our God. We can compare praising God with eating food. We don't just eat because we need fuel for our bodies. Often we take pleasure in eating. How much more don't we find satisfaction in praising our God? How delightful it is to join in music and song and to praise our God. Now we need to understand, beloved, that Praise and thanksgiving are the unique practice and experience of believers. An unbeliever may look at the world around him and marvel at its beauty. But he has no one to praise for the wondrous work of creation. An unbeliever may receive many good things. He may conclude that he has wonderful things. But he has no one to thank, because he does not know God or trust him. As our society becomes more secular, Thanksgiving Day loses its character. People may say that they are thankful for certain things. But thankful to whom? Thankfulness is more than just a feeling in our hearts. True thankfulness is an expression of praise to God for his grace and care in our lives. In verses 2 to 6 of our text, the psalmist follows up his call to praise the Lord with reasons why we are to do so. The focus of the first stanza of this psalm is on how we are to praise the Lord for his restoration Psalm 147 is a post-exilic psalm. It was written after God's people returned from exile. They had been carried to Babylon and scattered among the nations. 
Yet God had caused Cyrus, king of Persia, to issue a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem. He commanded God's people to rebuild the temple. And he told the people of any place where Jewish survivors were living to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, to help them reestablish the worship of God in Jerusalem. Between 40 and 50,000 of God's people returned to the promised land. Despite the obstruction of the Samaritans, the Lord was with his people. He allowed them to rebuild both the temple and the city walls. God blessed the land and allowed crops to grow again. In every way, the Lord made provision for the needs of his people. They laughed and sang. They could hardly believe their good fortune. The mighty deeds that the Lord did for Israel were the talk of the nations. In Psalm 126, the people confess, Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The covenant people of God were special. From the time the Lord delivered them from Egypt and brought them to Canaan, they were the talk of the nations. For the Lord dealt with them in a manner that no other God had ever dealt with its people. The psalmist gives expression to this in verse 2. He says, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. Imagine being forcibly removed from your home by a cruel occupying army. Imagine living in a foreign land among people speaking a different language who had very different customs than you do. And then imagine the joy of being able to return home. God's redemption of his people, his work of restoring them to Jerusalem, was an awesome work. It's something for which his people Israel praised and thanked him. We, beloved, need to look at God's work of restoration from a New Testament perspective. God's work of redeeming his people from exile and restoring them to communion with him in Jerusalem is something that finds fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Physically, we have not experienced exile, being torn from our home and native land and taken away as slaves to some faraway place. Yet spiritually, this is the experience of us all. We were all conceived and born in sin. We were all dead in trespasses and sins. By nature, we're all children of wrath, deserving to come under God's eternal condemnation. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God provided a glorious redemption for us by giving his dearly loved son as a sacrifice 
for our sins. Christ suffered and died on the cross to make atonement for us, to restore us to God's favor, that we might live with him in close fellowship once more. Israel was restored from exile in a foreign land and allowed to return to Jerusalem that she might live under God's care and protection there. In the same way, God has redeemed us from our sins and misery, from the mastery of Satan. And God makes us part of his church today. Together, we're privileged to be God's people, his family. Jesus made a rich promise to the disciples about the church. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Like Israel of old, we may rejoice in God's care and protection over us. God's work of restoration and renewal is cause for thanksgiving. It provides us with good reason to sing praises to our God. God's work of restoration is expressed in a more personal way in verse 3. The psalmist writes, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Just as living through the exile was a traumatic experience for God's people Israel, so living in this sin-stained world can be the same for us. There are things in life that cause us much sorrow and grief brokenness in family relationships, or struggles in living at peace with one another cause much sadness. Abuse, sickness, accidents, depression, death. These things can cause deep despair, at times even hopelessness. Like God's people of old, we can feel like our heart has been broken. But consider what Jesus came to do. When he started his ministry, he said he had come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus showed that in his dealings with God's people. Matthew 9, verse 36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. It was especially to the outcasts of Israel, those whom the religious leaders called tax collectors and sinners, that Jesus showed mercy. Jesus came to deliver us from our sins, to set us free from Satan's mastery. He came to bind up our wounds, to heal our trauma, to free us from hopelessness and despair so that we might find rest for our souls in him, that we might experience his healing power and see that reflected in being able to live in close communion with our God. Christ works that in us by his word and spirit. He ministers his grace so that we feel whole again. He provides restoration and renewal 
in the lives of us, his children. In verses 4 and 5, our text makes what seems to be an abrupt transition. It goes from speaking about how the Lord heals the brokenhearted to speaking about how he determines the number of the stars and gives them all their names. Yet there's a reason why the psalmist praises God for his rulership over the universe. God's power as creator and as a preserver of life gives evidence of his ability to build up Jerusalem and heal the brokenhearted. The point is made explicit in verse 5 where the psalmist praises God for his power. He says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. God is supremely powerful and exceedingly wise. That's why we can entrust our lives into his hands. The first part of Psalm 147 ends in verse 6. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. After showing God's grace and goodness and providing restoration for his people, the psalmist here issues a warning. God will not grant his blessings on the proud or on the wicked. It is the humble whom God will lift up. The point, beloved, is that God's promises of restoration are for those who know their need and misery and who seek their help from his holy name. We all need to learn to look to God for our hope and salvation. For it's in Christ, in Christ alone, that we find redemption and restoration. This brings us to our second point, and we're called to praise the Lord for his provision. Stanza two of our psalm begins with another call to worship. The psalmist says, Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. As God's people were commanded to sing and make music to the Lord as an expression of our thankfulness. The focus here is on God's care over creation, on the provision of food for all creatures. The psalmist speaks of how God covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. When Israel dwelt in the promised land, they had to trust in God to provide rain on their land. Unlike Egypt, which was irrigated by the flooding of the Nile, Israel was dependent on the spring and fall rains for their crops and grasses to grow. In the law of Moses, God had promised to water the fields by opening the heavens and sending forth the rain. Yet God's promises were conditional on Israel's faith and trust in him. The Lord said, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, 
and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Throughout her history, Israel experienced times of blessing, and also times when the Lord withheld his blessing. There are many years when the Lord provided abundantly for his people. There are also times of drought and hunger. It was in times when God's people wandered from his service, when they served the gods of the surrounding nations, that the Lord withheld rain from the land. Think of the droughts Israel experienced during the time of the judges and during the reign of King Ahab. The Lord disciplined his people by withholding rain to teach them that he and he alone was the one who provided them with food in due season. Today, we don't always know what to make of times of drought or of times when God provides abundant prosperity. We shouldn't assume that when we receive rain and fruitful years, that this is because of our obedience or our faithfulness. We also need to be careful not to automatically equate a lack of rain with punishment from God on the disobedient. Our situation today is different from that of Israel, living as God's people in God's land in the Old Covenant. We know from Psalm 73 that God caused the wicked to prosper while the righteous were downtrodden. In Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus taught that God makes his son rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Equating prosperity with man's goodness is fraught with difficulty, for it may be that God is long-suffering over against our wickedness and waiting for our repentance. To say that adversity is a direct result of specific sin on our part is to fall into the trap of Job's friends. God may have other reasons for bringing hardships upon us. But beloved, what we do know is that the Lord is in control of the weather. That all blessings come to us from his fatherly hand. We also know that God is a good God. He loves to provide for the needs of his children. That comes out clearly in verses 10 and 11 of our text. The psalmist says that God's delight is not the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Thanksgiving Day is a day in which we give thanks to God for his blessings over us in this past year. We especially thank God for his blessing on our crops and our labor, for God's material care over us, for providing us with all our physical needs. It's true that some have received more than others, yet God has granted each one of us the necessities of life. He's provided us with food for our nourishment, with clothes to wear, with a roof over our heads and transport to be able to get where we need to go. These are common material needs 
Yet they do not come to us by chance. They're gifts from the hand of God. And so we give thanks for them. We thank God for the health and strength he grants us. At times, we do not appreciate the gift of good health until we're sick. What we need to realize, beloved, is that it's the Lord who gives the ability to do our daily tasks. Often we like to take ownership of the things we have. We feel like we've earned them through our own hard work. The reality is that had not God given the health and the strength to do our work, we would not have anything. And so we thank God for health and strength and for the ability to go about our daily tasks. We thank God for life. He has made us and formed us. As the Apostle Paul said in his address to the people of Athens, it's only in him that we live and move and have our being. It's only in God that we can run and play and learn. It's only in him that we can eat and sleep and work. It's only in him that we can think, that we have the ability to reason and enjoy and love. We thank God for these wonderful gifts. Beloved, do you thank God for your blessings? When he gives you the means to buy a house or to purchase another car? Do you thank him for the job you have and for the work he sends your way? Do you thank him for health that he grants, for the ability to do your daily tasks? How about the things that we often consider mundane? Do you thank God for the food and drink he gives you at lunch? Do you recognize God's hand at work in all the little things of your life? There may be times when we feel ungrateful. In our materialistic age, we so often want more and more and more. When we see the abundant blessings God gives to those around us, it can be hard for us to live contented lives. To us, it seems like the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Beloved, instead of looking at our neighbor, let's look to the Lord. Let's take stock of the rich blessings he provides for us. And let us praise and worship God for his wonderful provision of all our needs. This brings us to our final point, and we're called to praise the Lord for his protection. Stanza three of this psalm begins with another call to worship. The psalmist says, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. The call here is for Jerusalem, for Zion, to praise the Lord. Jerusalem is a place where God chose to dwell among his people. Zion is the hill where the temple was built. There is a reason why God 
brought his people back from exile, why he restored the temple in their midst. It was so that his people could live in communion with him. It was so that through the line of Abraham and the line of David, God could fulfill his promises to send the coming Messiah. God loved Jerusalem and promised to protect her. The psalmist speaks of the Lord's protecting care. When he speaks of putting bars on the city gates, the result is that even the children will be safe within Jerusalem's walls. Yet God will not only provide safety and security from outward enemies, He will also grant peace within Israel's borders. He will fill His people with the finest wheat. God's people will be united in their love for the Lord and one another. God would provide them with economic prosperity. They would receive blessing upon blessing from his almighty hand. Once more, the psalmist shows that God has the power to fulfill his promises. His ability is clear from his rulership over creation. God needs but a word, and the earth is blanketed in snow, the landscape painted with hoarfrost. The Lord exhales and cars won't start because it's so cold. He speaks another word and temperatures thaw, snow melts and rivers and lakes open up again. What an awesome God, almighty in power. All he has to do is say a word and his will is accomplished. In verses 19 and 20, the psalmist shows how the Lord not only protects his people by his almighty power, he also protects and preserves them through his word. The psalmist says he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Israel was unique among the nations in that she received God's self-revelation. Everyone could enjoy nature's abundance. A star-filled sky, rain, crops, a beautiful sunset. But only Israel received God's testimony about himself and all his mighty deeds. Through his word, the Lord also made known to his people how they could live in the freedom he had given them. This applied to Israel when she came out of exile in Egypt. The law of Moses was given to teach God's people how to live in communion with God and in fellowship with their brothers and sisters in the promised land. By the time after the exile, God's people had experienced God's steadfast love and faithfulness to them in rescuing them despite their stubbornness and their disobedience. God brought them back to Zion, and he had blessed them exceedingly. That's why the psalmist calls on God's people to praise and worship him. Beloved, living in the last days, we are so much richer than God's people of old. God has adopted us as his children and heirs, He has promised to provide us with everything we need for body and soul. 
Christ has come to deliver us from our sins and misery, to restore us to righteousness and life. He's given us His Spirit to live in each of our hearts, to renew us, to help us praise and glorify God. He's promised to abide with us throughout all of this life. And finally, to bring us home into God's presence. What is your response to all God's wondrous works, to the gracious promises He has made to you? The psalmist calls us to sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, to praise Him for His restoration, His provision, and His protection. May we do that today and tomorrow on Thanksgiving Day and on all the days of our lives. Amen.